0: Welcome to Ethos, my name is Dave, I'm uh, so glad that you're here, and uh, today's supposed to be the first day of spring, but it does not feel um, very springish, um, which I was a little bit frustrated by, but um, hopefully uh, you're handling that better than I am this morning. If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be, Genesis chapter 3. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's in the very front, it's actually page 2 uh, of the Bible that we're using. We're going to be looking at one of the very first um, stories in Scripture we've been in this series the last uh, six or seven weeks together called Everyday Discipleship. And we're, we're wrestling with, okay, how do we as a community of faith really learn to follow Jesus together each and every day? And so we, we spent the first five or six weeks of this series looking at how do we relate to God the Father the way that Jesus does. And so we, we looked at prayer and worship and generosity and hearing the voice of God, and responding to the voice of God. And then last week, we kind of shifted into the second Portion of this series that really wrestles with how do we begin to relate with each other as a community of faith? How do we do life as the people of God in such a way that reflects the beauty of Jesus? So, if you're with us last week, we talked about just the way that grace and commitment work together uh, to, to really give birth to biblical community. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about something that, quite honestly, I've been praying through all week because I believe it touches every one of our lives in unique ways. And we're talking about gospel-shaped intimacy, like how do we have intimacy with God and each other that only comes when the truth of the gospel comes all the way down into your life? But we're also going to be talking about the the counterpart of gospel-shaped intimacy, which is shame, and the way that shame disrupts and pulls and tugs and distorts and really ruins what it is that God has made us for in the context of of, uh, of community, and I've, I've just been praying through this this week because I know we come in here, and I don't say this lightly, I know, you, I know some of you don't know me, I, I love you so much, I really do. The only reason I get up and do this, is I love you, and I love what God is doing here, and I sense that God is trying to break through into our community in new ways, um, even in the midst of us this morning, but that the enemy is gonna really resist this in some ways because some of the prisons that we've been locked in for a long time, and so I'm just going to pray this morning, and I say this just as kind of an aside, I'm not praying because it's the start of a sermon and you do that to be spiritual. Um, I'm actually praying because I believe God answers prayers and that God unlocks things in, in the human heart, and And I'm just going to pray for you, and this sounds kind of weird. I would ask that as I'm praying for you, would you pray for me uh, this morning, would you pray that I would just not be in the way, that the Spirit of God would just move among us and that we could hear His voice, um, and so Um, I'll pray for you, you can pray for me. If you're not a Christian, you can sit there and imagine if you want. It's cool, we're glad you're here. And I I think God has something for us. So Jesus, thank you for being real. Thank you for being strong, for being present. I think about all of the stories, I think about all of the baggage that we have smuggled into this place. I think about the husbands this morning that are sitting next to wives and they're scared to death their wives. We'll find out who they really are. Thinking about the roommates who are living in ways that their roommates don't know. I'm thinking about the, the way that shame deteriorates, even our view of you and of ourselves. And God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do what you talk about in Isaiah 64, where it says you rend the heavens, you tear them open, so that God, we could see your love. God, I pray that this morning as we talk about shame and as we talk about community, that you would not allow the enemy the ability to just fester us in our shame, but that God you would free us by the grace and the power and the beauty of Jesus. God, would you do what only you can do? God, would you speak in such a way this morning that I'm forgettable, my stories are forgettable, Um, that God, I am completely forgettable, but that your word and your ways and your truth are not ignorable. God, would the weight of your goodness settle in this place? Would you unlock us in new ways so that we can experience you in beautiful new realities? I love you. I want to love you more than I do. Would you help me with that? Would you help me to love these people even as I'm preaching this morning, God? Help for them to love you and to love one another. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray and give thanks, and together God's people say, Amen. Genesis chapter 3, page 2 is where we're going to be. So, when I was a kid, as far back as I kind of remember, uh, one of my mom's favorite hobbies was to go to yard sales. Just raise your hand if you grew up going to yard sales, if you think it's kind of wow, we have a lot of yard sales, or uh, kind of cool. But I, I remember Friday nights in our home, my mom would get out the newspaper, she'd spread it out on the floor, and she'd begin circling. You know, the, the, the good sales that she wanted to go to the next day. And uh, Saturday mornings were kind of her time. She'd wake up early. She'd get a biscuit from McDonald's. She would begin kind of hitting her, her little track of yard sales because she loved these moments when someone else's trash could become her treasure she could find kind of, these, kind of these hidden gems. And I remember every now and then, we as kids, we'd get to go along with her. And it's just this fun moment to wake up early with mom. We get to go to these yard sales. And if you've ever been to a yard sale or if you've ever hosted a yard sale, you know that all yard sales are kind of organized in the same manner, which sounds kind of funny that they're organized, but they are. They tend to put their very best items out on the front of the street, Right? In hopes that those who are driving past will see them and then and then pull over. And so, it, typically, when you pull up to a yard sale, within just a few minutes, you know to you know whether or not you need to get out of the car or not. So you drive up, and all the good stuff is out front. You know that couch that has a tear in the back, but you can't see it when it's next to the wall. The elliptical machine that you never used but you hung your dry dry cleaning on or the golf clubs or the skis or whatever it is, the big ticket items are always out front in the yard. And then you get further into the yard sale, closer to the house, and that's where you begin to find all the garbage, right? You have the puzzle that's missing pieces even though they swear to you it's not. You have the, the board games that don't come with instructions. Who reads them anyways? You, you have the, the book full of romance novels, novels that your grandmother left in the basement that they're just trying to pawn off on you, whatever it may be. And the closer you get to the house, the, the, the junkier it is. And I was thinking about that this week as I was kind of praying through Genesis chapter 3 and thinking about biblical community. And I go, so many of us, we have been discipled and trained both by our culture and our churches to organize our lives like yard sales. We're taught when we're very, very young, put the best of who you are on the curb of your life on display for everyone to see and work very hard to make sure no one gets up the driveway of your life into the garage. Work very hard to make sure that no one gets past who you really are. We're taught to do this in our conversations. Have you ever been guilty of using a word in a conversation and you only used it because you wanted the other person to think you're smarter than you are? Or maybe you've been in a conversation and someone used a big word that you didn't know and you pretended you knew it. I did that literally this week. I was hanging out with a college student who is 12 years younger than me. Good friend of mine. His name's Christopher. We're hanging out and he uses this word. I have no idea what the word means. And he's like, you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, totally, man. I do that all the time. We fake it, don't we? We fake it in our conversations. We do this at every job interview we've been to. Have you ever been to a job interview where you were 100% honest? Repent now. (laughs) Best foot forward. You do this in relationships. You do this in your house when someone's coming over unexpectedly and you throw everything in the back room and you light a candle so you'll appear to be cleaner than you are. You do this on social media and you do this in church. I mean, a lot of us are sitting here this morning and if we were honest, the person next to you is getting the least true version of who you are right now. This is the most put together version of you all week because we've been trained since we were really, really little that it is fundamentally impossible to be fully known and fully loved. And if you have to choose between someone loving the fake you or potentially rejecting the real you, we choose fake love all the time. And this way of living, this way of thinking, infiltrates the way that we do community, both in the church and beyond the church. And the scriptures say, you were created for more. So this morning, I want us to wrestle with, why is it that so many of us struggle with real intimacy shaped by the gospel? Like, why is it that we struggle to to, to be in friendship with the people that we want to be in friendship with most? Why do we struggle to love and be loved by the people we want to love most? Why is that a human tendency that seems to touch down in every one of our lives? What is the barrier for intimacy in this morning? What do we need for breakthrough? Does that make sense? What are the barriers and what do we need for breakthrough? And so we're going to jump back to Genesis Chapter 3, and in fact, I want you to flip over to Genesis chapter 2. Where we're going to look at the, the last part of that chapter. I'll give you the cliff notes because th- this tension that we find, this struggle that we find as we try to find communities, we try to live in intimacy with God and each other. Actually, this has not always been the case. You go back to the, the very beginning of scriptures, and you see this beautiful scene. I'll give you the cliff notes. God has created everything. He's created Adam and Eve And at the end of everything that God creates, he makes this beautiful statement. He says, man, this is really good. But there's this moment when he gets to the end of creating human beings... And he uses this word that he hasn't used in any other portion. And if I could just kind of take some poetic license for a moment, it's as if God looks at human beings. He's just created Mount Everest. He's just created the ocean. He's just created everything that we go on vacation to see because we think it's so beautiful. And God creates humans and he goes, wow, cliff notes. But he's like, wow, look at how beautiful they are. Look at how amazing they are. I mean, look at the person next to you right now. I mean, you are sitting next to someone or something so much more beautiful than Everest. Don't be a weirdo about it. Don't ask him on a date, but just look at him. (laughs) Gorgeous. Created for the glory and the manifestation of God's purposes. When's the last time you walked into a crowded Walmart and saw all the people and went, wow, the glory of God is rich here. We're laughing because sin has ruined what God has made. And God created them, and there's this community that unfolded. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. I love the statement, the way that the writer of Genesis describes his first community. It says, and Adam and Eve were both naked, and they felt no shame. And he's describing community. We live in a culture so over-sexualized that we always connect nudity to sex, and this is not at all what the writer's saying. What he's saying is that their soul was wide open to God and their spouse, and there was nothing in them to be feared. Adam could say, hey, Eve, search me, discover me, know me. There's nothing in me that is fearful of you finding something that I want to hide. And Eve turned and did the same thing to Adam, and they did the same thing to God. They lived in this place of perfect community. This is what you're made for. It's what I was made for. It's what the church was created for. To be this place where our souls are wide open and unashamed, laid bare before the people around us. This is who we are in Christ. And here, we can be fully known and fully loved. And yet, can we call a spade a spade for a minute? Do any of us actually feel that way? (laughs) Of course we don't. Of course we don't. And I want us to see what is the barrier between who we are and what we're meant to be? And how do we break through these barriers? And so here's the cliff notes. They have this community at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And they're there in the Garden of Eden, perfect community with God and each other and Satan enters the picture, I'm just going to kind of sum this up for you. You can go back and you can read the first part of Genesis chapter 3, but it says that Satan enters the picture. He comes in in the form of a serpent, and he begins to, to weave this narrative into the midst of this very first community. And the way that he starts is he looks at Adam and Eve and says, do you think you can really trust the Word of God? Did God really say? That's the question he asked. Did God really say? Did God really mean? And this is the way that the enemy always starts. It's the way that he started in the Garden of Eden. It's the way that he starts with Jesus when he's tempting in the desert. Did the Father really say? And it's the way that he busts up our community today. He he comes in and he says, did God really say? Did God really mean that? Surely he did. I mean, is this really timeless? Is it really relevant? And he starts with getting them to, to question the word and the authority and the motives of God And then all of a sudden, there's this infamous scene where Adam and Eve are standing there at the foot of the tree. Everyone thinks it's an apple. Who knows what it is? But they're there at the foot of the apple tree, maybe, and they're there. And they find themselves in this struggle. Do we choose our ways or God's ways? Our pleasure or obedience to the Father is the first time in their life where they thought there was a tension between pleasure and obedience. Up until this point, they had always thought that if they wanted real pleasure, they needed to walk in perfect obedience because God was after their joy and pleasure. But sin enters the world, and all of a sudden, that feels like two opposing ideas in their mind, and they make the choice that we've all made, not just once, but over and over and over, where we choose our ways over God's ways, our pleasure over obedience, and all of a sudden, their community begins to unravel. And this morning, there's all these things that we could look at in the story, but I just want us to notice what begins to happen in the context of their community? How gospel intimacy begins to unfold and fall apart as they begin to take things into their own strength and into their own way. So look at, me, look at this with me. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. Are you guys with me this morning? You here? Doing well? Verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it as well. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. And then the the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I don't know if you underline or highlight in your Bible, but you need to underline this next phrase. Look at what they did. And they hid from the Lord their God among the trees of the garden. I just want to pause here for a second. Just a few moments before, their community was marked by openness and vulnerability, trust, no shame, no fear, no worries. To be in the presence of God was a good thing. And all of a sudden, they sin and everything begins to fracture. And notice what their first instincts become in the presence of God once sin has entered the picture. No longer is it openness and intimacy and vulnerability. Their first instincts are to hide and to cover. Have you ever noticed how the sins of our first parents have infiltrated your heart in ways that you typically don't think about? Like, isn't it amazing that when you screw things up, when you sin, how quick? How many of you are so quick in the midst of your sin to say, just let me confess it. Just let me share it. Let me tell it. I was thinking about this this week. Like, when I screw things up, my gut reaction, my spiritual knee-jerk reaction is to hide and to cover Think about a story from a few years ago. Sydney and I were getting ready to move into a new house and she had this piano that her grandmother had given her. It was a, it was a kind of an emotional gift. Like some of you have possessions in your life that are like that they have deep sentimental value. And So her grandmother had given her this piano. And I remember me and some of my buddies were going to move us into our new house uh, while Sydney was at work, and she asked me to be very careful with this piano. And I said, "Okay, I will be." And so me and my buddy uh, Will, not Shannon who leads worship, another Will, just an aside for you seeking so you picture, his name is Will. Also, I'm taking the piano down the stairs, and I get to the bottom of the stairs, and I crack the bottom of this piano. And instantly, like in this moment of just unbelievable fear, I start weighing my options. And instead of being a grown man and calling my wife and saying, hey, believe it or not, I couldn't carry a piano by myself down the stairs. I broke your piano. Instead of just calling her and confessing it, uh, like a coward, I take the piano into the living room, I put it up against the wall. Uh, We had this plant that I put next to the place that was broken, and I literally began to hide and cover thinking, she's never gonna notice it. And so there we are, Two or three weeks into the new house and there's this one moment, I'm back in the bedroom and I just hear, my name, full name, first, middle, last, (laughs) never a good thing. It's never like a moment of romance, David Jonathan Clayton, like, (laughs) it was like this moment of fear and I'll never forget walking in there, she's like, why why would you hide this? We've dated for like five years, we've been married for six years, like, why would you hide, why would you do this? And I went, this is my instinct, and I'm not proud of it. This is your instinct. Sin enters the world, and failure comes our way. And what do we do in the midst of failure? We, we hide and we cover. We hide and we cover. We hide and we cover. Keep going in the story. Look at this. Verse 9, but the, but the Lord called him and said, where are you? And the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. What a typical dude. Just blame it on the girl. (laughs) And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And they begin this cycle or this pattern that has been at work ever since. And all of a sudden they find this barrier This real distance, this real distraction. And this morning, if you take notes, I want you to notice this for a second. I want you to notice how sin creates this barrier for real intimacy. And it creates this barrier in three very distinct arenas of their life. The first is it creates this barrier between them and God. Did you notice like back in verse 8, as soon as sin enters the world it immediately changes the way that they view or perceive their Heavenly Father. I remember experiencing this a few weeks ago. I walked down into the den of our house, and my oldest son, Mike, was there. And as soon as I walked in, he said, Hey, Dad, are you mad at me? I was like, what? Like, Like, where where did that come from? And then I instantly realized, that dude's just done something that I should be mad about. (laughs) And so I just started spanking. no, no. Have you ever had one of those moments where you made a choice and because of your choice, you instantly saw everything and everyone else differently? Adam and Eve had never feared God before. They'd never been scared of God before this moment. God showing up in their life was a good thing, but as soon as sin enters the world, it disrupts and it changes the way that they view God, and they find themselves hiding. It says they cover themselves with fig leaves and they hide behind the tree. And we, as modern readers, we read this story and go, "Ha ha ha ha! How funny that they would hide behind leaves and trees. You can't hide from God." But I go, "Have you ever tried hiding from God? Of course you have. We all hide from God. We hide from God differently." But all of our lives are covered with fig tree fig leaves and trees. Some of you when when you sin, you've spent your whole life hiding from God by running from religion. That moment where you do something you wish you wouldn't have done and then all of a sudden you want to get as far away from any spiritual reality. I don't want to pray. I don't want to be at church. I don't want to be around my house church. I don't want to be around my Christian friends. I don't want to talk to my parents because they want to pray for me. Some of you, you know this is your tendency. This is the way you hide from God. Sin enters the world and you immediately start running from anything with the name of Jesus on it. Some of you, I've been in that moment where you, you went to a bar on a Friday night. And in a moment of weakness, you went home with someone you shouldn't have gone home with. And you found yourself in a moment of joyful, sinful passion. That's what I call it, because sin in the moment always feels fun. And you're having sex with some person. You're not even sure you know their real name. And then the moment it's over... You find yourself in the loneliest place you've ever been because you're laying next to someone who you know doesn't love you. And you're just trying to figure out what's the escape plan. And you call the Uber, and you're going home. Is this getting too real? I'm just trying to speak into our lives. And you don't want your friends to know or your family to know, and you could just you could plug it in, whatever it is, but that moment of shame hits you. You make that choice that you couldn't imagine hitting you, and you go, man, I don't know if I can pray anymore. I don't know if I can go to church anymore. I don't know if I can take communion. I remember in our church several months ago meeting a guy and he comes up to me and says, I haven't taken communion in six months. I've been here, I haven't taken communion because I'm not worthy of it. And that's what we do sometimes when sin enters our life. We hide from God by running from religion. Some of you are the exact opposite. You hide from God not by running from religion but actually running to it. And some of you go, man, I did that thing I thought I would never do again. And so I'm going to serve harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to give more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to strive more. I'm going to listen to more podcasts. I'm going I'm to take better notes. I'm going to be dug in. I'm going I'm to go after God. Have you ever done this before? And here's the interesting thing. Some of you have spent your whole life hiding from God in the midst of the church. And there's this great fear that if God would speak to you this morning, his first words to you would be words of condemnation. I remember years ago, this couple came over to our house, and Sydney asked the wife a question that has stuck with me for years. She said, hey, if if Jesus was sitting before you in person this morning, if you could see him, what do you think he'd say to you? And I don't know what I was expecting the woman to say, but I will never forget her response. She said, I think he would look at me and say, I am so disappointed in you. I went, man, oh God. why? Because the enemy, the enemy has convinced us that if God were to walk in this room this morning, that it would be bad news for you. When God comes into the room, it is wonderful news. And sin instantly creates this barrier between them and in intimacy with the Father. It changes the way they see God and they begin to hide and cover themselves from God. But it doesn't just create a barrier between them and God, it creates a barrier between them and each other. And I want you to, I want you to notice this. Go back to verse 7. It's the, it's the first time where all of a sudden there's this distance between Adam and his wife, between Eve and her husband. There's this distance. They begin to cover themselves, they've made a choice. They made it together. They made a choice that affected them and God, but instantly it begins to infiltrate the context of their marriage. And Adam goes, I don't know if Eve would still love me if she actually knew me. And Eve goes, I don't know if Adam would still love me if he actually knew me. And they begin to hide and cover. Uh, I, I did this last night uh, with Sydney. I actually had a story from earlier this week, but because I'm such a consistent sinner, I have a story that's even fresher than this week. I have one from last night. We're sitting on the couch, and she and I are trying to make a decision, kind of a big decision in our life right now. And kind of in the midst of that decision, I was wrestling with some kind of hard choices or some hard feelings uh, that I had about that decision. And Sydney looked at me. And she said, she said, babe, I'm not sure what happened, but you just, you're, you're like shutting down on me. You're just like closing me off right now. And then I do the typical guy thing. I start proving to her how I'm not closing her off. I'm like, well, I did this. Didn't, this happened, you can say an amen if this is true. Amen. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, hey, here's what I did this week. And I'm just like laying it out there, like logically. Here's how you know I'm not shutting you out. And, and then I realized, man, I'm shutting out. Because there's this aspect of my heart that was connected to that decision that I didn't want her to see. And I've been with Sydney for 16 years. This morning I'm preaching on gospel-shaped intimacy, and last night I was discovering in fresh new ways how sin still keeps me from finding gospel-shaped intimacy with my wife. And there's this moment, this separation that comes, where we go, man, if they really knew that about me, there is no way they would love me. And I would rather her love the fake me then be frustrated by or reject the real me. Raise your hand if you've ever felt that. Be honest. Raise your hand if you've ever been in one of those moments. Just say, that's who I am. And sin enters the picture, and it doesn't just disrupt their walk with God, and it doesn't just disrupt their, their view of each other. This is one of the most stunning parts of the passage. It even creates a barrier of intimacy with themselves. As soon as sin enters the world... Adam and Eve no longer can really see themselves as they are. I love that moment. I made a joke about it as we we're reading through the text. But God comes to Adam and he says, hey, bro, what's, what's going on? And, and what does Adam do? He immediately begins blaming God and his wife. Well, God, it's that woman you gave me. If only you would have been more sovereign, you would have given me a different woman because she messed me up. Hey, Eve, what's the deal? Well, it's, it's the enemy, God. If only you would have been more sovereign and just kept him out of this garden. Sin enters the world and it doesn't just create a barrier of intimacy between them and God and them and one another. It creates a barrier of intimacy with themselves. No longer can Adam and Eve see themselves as they actually are. This is one of the places where we're being robbed. And I say this in love. Man, I hope you hear this in love. Our culture has discipled us in the art of blame shifting. Especially those of us that are in the younger generation, we have been taught over and over and over, it's just not your fault. Well, what's not your fault, Dave? Everything, nothing is your fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's our culture's fault. It's the system's fault. It's the man's fault. It's whatever. It's their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. fault. I go, this is the reality of sin entering the world. It doesn't just create a barrier of intimacy between us and God and us and each other. It keeps us from seeing ourselves the way we need to see ourselves. And here's the truth. Some of you are experiencing really difficult things in your life right now because you have made really terrible decisions. That's it. And our lives have been affected by the terrible decisions that other people have made, for sure. And our lives are being affected by the systematic decisions, for sure. But the reality is when sin penetrates a human heart, the first area of corruption is at the lowest, deepest level, and that is our ability to see us for for who we really are and to understand who we really are in this moment. And Adam goes, it's not my fault. Eve says, it's not my fault. And God in his kindness begins pulling back the layers. And so here's here's my question for us this morning. You know, if the story stopped here, it'd be so depressing because I go, in, in a culture, we live in a world where every person you come in contact with, every system you come in contact with has been infiltrated and soaked by the reality of sin. So in a world that has been soaked by sin, how do we possibly begin to experience true breakthrough so we can have gospel shaped intimacy? How do you have real breakthrough in a world shaped by sin and shame and pain and heartache? Our culture tends to answer this question in one of two ways. We go to extremes, right? That's what we always do, just the pendulum swings. And so there's one half of our culture that says if you want to escape the grip of shame, if you want to find real community, Just deny any wrongdoing. Just deny it. There's nothing wrong with you. Be who you are. Be loud. Be proud. Own it. If they can't accept you, it's their fault. Just be who you are. And there's part of our culture that says, just be yourself. And if they can't love you, get over it. And the problem is, some of us have tried that. And you can deny your brokenness in public. But when you're alone with yourself at night, even if everyone else loves you, you struggle to love yourself. Because you know, no matter how much you beat that kick drum of self-perfection, you know that when you're alone, you're not. There's a part of our culture that keeps saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. And when we're by ourselves at night, we go, I I just don't know that I buy that. I want that to be true. I would love for that to be true. It's just not. The pendulum, though, also swings to the other side. It's not about denial on the other side. It's about discipline. If only you could be more disciplined. Make better choices. (laughs) Have better friends. Be more careful who you let in. Be more careful who you let out. Make sure no one gets past the driveway of your life. Be more disciplined, and then you'll be loved. And the problem is, is you feel loved, but then you get home at night and you go, okay, but I've got this card in my back pocket. And if I ever play this card, if I ever tell them that part of my story, if I ever tell them that temptation, if I ever tell them that feeling, there is no way they will still be my friends when they know this about me. And on that other side, where discipline is our God, maybe we feel loved, but we don't feel known. And the truth is, when you're not known, you begin to doubt if you're even loved, right? But the story that unfolds in Genesis 3 is so much bigger than this. God says it doesn't have to be one or the other. You don't have to choose between being known or being loved. You can have both of these things, but they they come with the gospel. The culture says, deny it, or the culture says, be more disciplined. But the way of God is not about denial or discipline. It's about death. And I love the picture of God in the story of Genesis chapter 3. You should just go back and look at this this week. But notice how God arrives on the scene of the crime here in Genesis 3. Everything has been ruined And I love the way that God walks into the scene. You know, I think about times when I come into my kitchen and my kids have made a mess or they've done something they shouldn't have done. And I come in and I'm yelling and I'm mad and I'm angry uh, because I'm human. Maybe you've been there, don't judge me. But you know, I'm, I'm just mad kind of in one of those moments. And I go, if anyone had the right to lose his mind, it would be God. But I want you to look at what he does here in Genesis chapter three. Look back at this. This is one of my favorite, favorite parts. Verse eight: The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. Listen to this: As he was walking, doesn't seem like a big deal when you just read the story. But God's cosmic plan has just been disrupted by sin, and He's not running. He's not screaming. He's not panicking. He's walking because He has a plan. has a plan and do you know what his plan was for restoring gospel intimacy to a broken world it wasn't denial and it wasn't discipline it was death and it's the first time in the scriptures that we get the hints of Jesus the aroma of Jesus Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where God begins to lay out this is what I'm going to do This is how I'm gonna do it. And this is the great exchange. This is the great shift in the midst of Genesis chapter three. See, Adam and Eve thought in order for them to regain intimacy, what they needed to do was to cover themselves. And so they start taking things off of the trees to cover themselves. But God says the way that you regain gospel intimacy is not by taking something off of a tree to cover yourself. The way that you regain gospel intimacy is when I hang someone on a tree and his love And his righteousness and his grace becomes your covering. The way that we regain the ground of intimacy lost is not by taking something off of a tree, but by turning our eyes to the one that was hung on a tree. That Jesus Christ loved you and he knew you and he gave his life for you. And the reason you and I can face the possibility of being rejected by other human beings in a sinful world is because you've already been accepted by God. Rejection by people, that fear of rejection by people, immediately begins to resolve itself when we receive the divine acceptance that comes to Jesus Christ and the glory of his gospel. That when you were dead in your sin, when you were covered in fig leaves, when you were hiding in the garden, the God of love came looking for you. He knows your name. He knows everything about you. Every sin you have committed, you committed after his son Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And God gave that sacrifice for you and towards you so that the veil between you and God could be torn wide open and so that you could begin receiving intimacy with the Father, intimacy with the people in this room and intimacy with yourself. See, the, the reason we have the courage to stand as we are, is because we've been recipients of love when we did not deserve to be recipients of that love. And so you know every week we have, we've wrestled with this and we go okay, how, how do we put this into practice? And I just want to end by just giving you a couple of really simple things to practice this week because I don't just want to speak to your heads and I don't want to just speak to your hearts. I want us to wake up on Monday morning and begin reclaiming the grounds of gospel intimacy that have been lost in our, in our ways of sin. And so just three simple things that I'd encourage you to try this week number one we'll be very short number one is surrender surrender for some of you this is coming to Jesus for the first time you're not Christians I just want to say this as simply as I know how the type of intimacy that you were made for is impossible outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ only when you are anchored in the confidence of his unending love can you walk with the freedom in community that you're made for so for some of you it's a place of first-time surrender for some of you, it's like I described last night with my wife. It's just a place of continual surrender where you just, okay, God, there's areas where I'm still hiding. I'm still in hiding. God, please, free me of this. Second thing is not, so the first thing is surrender. The second thing is presence. Presence. The presence of God. You know, we, we spent five or six weeks talking about how to lean into the presence of God through the word and through prayer Through times of silence, through hearing the voice of God responding to that. And here's why this is so important. You are being bombarded every single moment of every single day by stories and by people who are saying, you're not good enough. Everything in our culture is trying to convince you to organize the yard sale of your life around the, the, the principles of the culture. And the only way that you begin to reclaim grounds of gospel intimacy is when you spend more time in the presence of God learning from God the Father than you are learning from the culture around us. A lot of us, maybe all of us, aren't spending nearly enough time in the presence of God. And I'll say that in a legalistic way. But if you're just... Saying a prayer before you start your day or reading a scripture on your phone and then spending 99% of your day doing what you would do, the reality is the narratives of the culture are gonna dominate your heart. It's not until you find yourself in the presence of God that the love of God keeps having his way in brand new ways in you. So the first is surrender. The second is about presence. Here's the last one. Number three is confession. And the order of these is so important Because unless you've surrendered your life to Jesus, unless you have been washed fresh in the love of his presence, you're only setting yourself up for heartache when you live into confession. Because the reality is, some of you this week, you're gonna confess things and you're gonna feel very wounded because people will not receive that confession the way that you wanted them to. Some of you will experience rejection as you share your hearts with people that you love. And that's the reality, okay? But it starts... It starts with surrender and presence and it gives you the courage to live these lives of confession. James chapter five, verse 16, there's this very interesting statement. It says, confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. That's a fascinating statement, James chapter five. He doesn't say confess your sins to one another and you'll be forgiven. Because when you confess your sins to God, you're already forgiven. It's not until we begin confessing our sins to one another that we experience the reality of that forgiveness. Healing does not come until we begin sharing with those who are closest to us some of the things in our life that have been most off limits. And you begin to share those things. Some of you have been asking God for forgiveness for 20 years for the same thing. He forgave you 20 years ago. But you have not experienced the healing reality of that forgiveness because you can't tell your spouse or your friends or your roommates about it. I'll just bring it down to the ground. Here's how it happened this week on Sunday one of my very best friends. He and I have been friends for a long time, 11 or 12 years now. And he had this thing in his life. He made a choice. He, he did something when he was 11 years old, which is crazy to think about. He did something when he was 11 years old. And it has haunted him for decades. And we're in this moment uh, up at the prayer gathering on Sunday night, I mean, every Sunday night at 7 o'clock. We're praying and we're worshiping. And my buddy just begins surrendering this thing before the Lord. Hey, there's this thing when I was 11. uh, What do I do? And he's giving it over. And in the moment as he's giving that over to the Lord, the love of God just begins to wash down on my friend's life. And I don't know, that may sound like a weird phrase to some of you. Maybe you've never experienced it. I don't know how to make you understand it. Maybe the Holy Spirit will help you. But the tangible love of God just starts just flooding my brother's heart. And as this is happening, his first response is, I've got to tell a couple of my very best friends in this room what's going on. I've got to tell them about the ground that God has just reclaimed in me. And so we, we sit down, and he begins to say, hey, when I was 11 years old, this thing happened. I did this thing. And, man, let me tell you, I have never experienced the joy and the closeness of God and the beauty of biblical community like I did as we were sitting in that circle when brother to brother, we said, This is who I am. We put it on the table, and what we received was unbelievable love. And it was there in that moment where heaven started reclaiming what had been lost in the garden. And I'm convinced that's what God has for us. And in a minute, we're, we're going to take communion. And I want to really challenge you with something on this. I go, where, where is it in that spectrum that you find yourself? Where are you still hiding? like who are you hiding from where is God inviting you to surrender where does the presence of God need to flood your life what is something you need you need to confess some of you have things in your life that you're not ready to confess to someone near to you and I just want to say that's okay I know that sounds crazy after the the big pep rally I just gave us there There's some things in your life that may be heavy. We're gonna have some men and women up here that would love to pray over you. We have counselors in our church that'd love to sit down with you this week and listen to some of the things that are going on in your life if they they feel too heavy. Maybe that's your first step. But I go, where does God call on you to? For some of you, it'll be around communion and you will look at your spouse or you'll look at your friend and you'll say, this is the thing I've never told you. And you're gonna take a risk And what you experience is the love of God in brand new ways. We were made for intimacy in the kingdom. It's not settled for counterfeit. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus, that we can stand in the confidence of who he is, his righteousness, his grace, his power. God, would you unlock, would you free, would you set free everything that needs to be turned loose in this room? I love you, Lord Jesus. It is in your name that I pray and give thanks, amen.